saxophone is an instrument that's always been associated with jazz, but it's a relatively new instrument compared to the violin or trumpet or keyboard. It was invented in the 1840s by a brilliant inventor and performed by the name of Adolf Sax. And for many years, the instrument really didn't seem to be able to find a home. Brass players didn't really like it and woodwind players didn't like it. But it found a welcome home in military bands in Europe and then here in the United States in the late 19th century. Around the turn of the century, through brilliant marketing and merchandising, the saxophone became one of the most popular novelty instruments. Groups popped up all over the country with saxophone quartets, trios. There were women saxophonists that became virtuoso. So this was an instrument that had a great novelty appeal to people. But as far as serious music, it really wasn't an instrument that was taken very seriously by composers and musicians. It wasn't until after the turn of the century when some ragtime musicians picked up the instrument and some very important band leaders such as Patrick Gilmore and John Philip Sousa adopted it in their bands that it really took off. As far as American popular music, it took until the 1920s when jazz musicians or people playing this new style of music that was called syncopated or hot music really became attracted to the sound of the saxophone. The saxophone is capable of more color than just about any instrument because the imperfections of the instrument. It can be sweet, it can be mellow, it can be loud, it can be raucous, it can sound like a person crying, it can sound like a dog barking. Actually, some of the very early virtuosos made a lot of money imitating all kinds of non-musical sounds on the horn, but the wide range of the instrument is really what I think has made it so popular. It can be played as soft as a violin or very, very loud, and it comes in an incredible range of instruments from a tiny sopranino to the contrabass saxophone. So we're talking about an instrument that can cover so many different basses. And it wasn't until the jazz musicians picked up this instrument that it really took off. And since the 1920s has been an instrument that has always been associated with jazz. In the 20s, there were some very great jazz musicians, but I want to concentrate on the period from 19, late 20s, early 30s, through about 1940. And we talk about the golden age of the saxophone. We're referring to tenor saxophonists, especially, of course, there were some great alto and baritone saxophonists in the 20s. But the four classic tenors I'm referring to are, of course, Coleman Hawkins, who's sometimes referred to as the father of the jazz tenor saxophone, Ben Webster, a little bit younger than uh, Coleman Hawkins, a great tenor player. Chew Berry, who's probably the least well-known, but back in, in that period from 1930 to about 1941 or 42 when he passed away, was one of the most well-respected and often copied saxophonists. And my personal favorite, Lester Young. The saxophone players in the second half of the teens into the early 20s and mid-20s really weren't jazz players like a Louis Armstrong or a King Oliver. It took Louis Armstrong to effectively change the way the saxophone players played from about 1920 to 1924. If you hear Coleman Hawkins with a Fletcher Henderson band before Louis Armstrong joined, it would sound corny. The rhythm was stiff, and he was using this technique that was very popular but annoying called slap-tonguing. And this was the way all saxophone players played at that time. And, of course, when Lewis comes on the scene in New York City and plays with Henderson and all these great players here, Armstrong, their improvisational style and rhythmic style changes. And Coleman Hawkins is no exception to the rule. 
All of a sudden, he stopped that stiff ragtime rhythm, and then he left that for a smoother approach, the long, short eighth notes of Louis Armstrong, and the improvisations took on a different character, and he dropped the slap-tonguing, which is a great effect. It's still, sometimes you hear musicians do it. It's kind of like the sound that goes like... Once or twice it's okay. When you overuse it, it becomes very annoying. But it was part of the saxophonist repertoire through the mid-20s. Louis Armstrong gives us a new way to play, and saxophone players say, I'm going to leave that old style because it's old. We want to go into this new approach. Now, Hawk was a great tenor player. He was also a very well-rounded musician. He was a good pianist. He knew music theory inside and out, and he started out on the cello, which really, I think his sound is very reminiscent of the sound of a cello. Cello is a tenor voice, and the tenor saxophone, of course, is a tenor voice instrument. But the cello is played with a constant vibrato. When you hear the tenor saxophone, it's from the late 20s into the 30s. They all play with a cello-like vibrato, which comes from Coleman Hawkins. Let's listen to a great recording of him by 1926 with the Fletcher Henderson group playing Sugarfoot Stomp. Hawkins became quite famous playing with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, which was one of the most important and popular dance-slash-jazz bands in New York City in the 1920s. Coleman made a lot of recordings with a variety of different people, but he really brings the saxophone to the present state as an instrument that represents all the things that jazz represented in the 1920s, a new approach to sound, this amazing inventive improvisational streak that he had. And, of course, Coleman Hawkins was a well-dressed man who loved sports cars, and he was just a man who was really in the moment of the 1920s, and his music represents that. He possessed amazing technique, and he had a great, deep sound with a wide vibrato, rather earthy, dark sound. He liked to play straight on top of the beat, which was very representative of 1920s style. It's a kind of a da-da-dee-da-da-da-da, heavy on the downbeat style, which he played throughout his career um, into the 1960s. But that rhythmic approach, the sound, and his inventive improvisations really set the standard for all saxophonists. He wanted to hit all of the notes in the chord, as opposed to Lester Young, who we're going to talk about later, who was more of a horizontal player. If I can make an analogy, listening to Coleman Hawkins is like taking a, a trip to see an aunt or an uncle, but making 15 or 20 stops on the way because all these places are interesting. When you listen to Lester play, he takes a more direct and less circuitous route, and he gets there, but in a different manner, a smoother manner. And so the players were very different, but Coleman really sets the example of what's to be expected of the tenor saxophone. 
He left for Europe a few times in the 1930s and was very successful performing in Europe. And he spent quite a few years there. And while he was gone, a handful of great tenor saxophonists were ready to occupy the space vacated by Coleman Hawkins, who was enjoying a few years performing in Europe. After Coleman Hawkins, someone whose sound is reminiscent is a man by the name of Ben Webster. Ben was a few years younger. Coleman was born about 1904, and Ben was born in 1909. So there's about a six-year difference between the, the two of them. Both Ben and Coleman were raised in Kansas City. But Ben took what Coleman did, and he put his own stamp on it. One of the things about Ben Webster's playing is that he used a variety of different sounds when he played. He could sound like butter or velvet or so smooth when he would play a ballad. In fact, that was his forte. They said he played the most sensual ballad known to man. And he had the most amazing sound with a beautiful vibrato. But when Ben played an up-tempo song, he could growl into the horn and completely change the texture of his sound. So he was a guy who not only was a great improviser with a great sense of time, but he was a guy who played with a variety of different sounds depending on the mood he was in or the style. If it was a ballad, it was lush, it was fat, and it was buttery. And if it was a hot blues or something like that, it was growly with a lot of attitude. Ben really came to prominence playing with the Duke Ellington Orchestra in the late 1930s as part of what was called the Ellington Blanton Orchestra. Duke Ellington had great soloists in his band from the late 20s through the 30s and 40s, but he never had a strong tenor saxophonist. And then with the addition of Ben Webster, Ellington's soloing cadre was complete. He had great instrumentals on all the instruments, plus Webster's. When you listen to Ben play on Cottontail, Duke Ellington, you can hear Duke using that Ben Webster sound. When he wrote lush ballads, he would either write them for Johnny Hodges, who was a great alto player, or he wanted that deep, kind of dark, velvety sound, he'd write it for Webster to play. And Webster played on quite a few great recordings from this period, from about 1939 to 1942. And let's listen to another piece by Webster. This is called Lafayette, and this is a fast piece. Coleman sets the standard. But, of course, once someone sets the standard, there's always other saxophone players or other musicians who are gunning for that musician. 
And of course, in the 1930s, the Kansas City style is a very competitive style. It was a friendly competition, but Coleman Hawkins considered himself to be the king, but he had left the country. It's very interesting, when he came back about 1938, he realized he had been replaced by all these great young tenor players, or his contemporaries that basically just slipped in when he left. 